When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, this is Paul Dooley. You're listening to TV Confidential. Good luck. There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. If we wish to make it louder, we will bring up the volume. If we wish to make it softer, we will tune it to a whisper. We will control the horizontal. We will control the vertical. We can roll the image, make it flutter. We can change the focus to a soft blur or sharpen it to crystal clarity. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. We repeat, there is nothing wrong with your television set. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind to the outer limits. Ed Robertson, along with guest Joseph Doherty. Joseph Doherty, Emmy Award-winning writer, producer, and director, and the author of a new science fiction novel called The First Cylinder that draws inspiration from the famous invasion of Earth by Martians that H.G. Wells depicted in his classic novel, War of the Worlds. Only Joe tells the story from the perspective of the Martians. The first cylinder is available right now through Fayetteville Mafia Press and Amazon.com. Dan Farron and Tony Figueroa are also with us. We're having some fun talking about some of our favorite obscure science fiction TV series, including such shows as Science Fiction Theater and One Step Beyond, shows that were more or less prototypes for later series such as The Twilight Zone. When we went to break, Dan was talking about how, for him, science fiction was a genre that always represented hope, that even if the story was about something bad, there was always a chance that even something bad may turn out to be something good. That prompted Joe to ask Dan for his thoughts on the films of George Powell. Yeah, I mean, you said hope, and he was notorious and and kind of fell out of favor because he wanted to build films that had that kind of stuff in them. Yeah. Yeah, every every you know, it's like every morning I wake up, I have a new film that's my favorite. You know, <laughs> okay. I, but if you ask me to make a list of, of whatever, it, it changes. I don't feel any reason to to do that because the fact is that this, this is how, at my age, I judge things. Did I like it or didn't I like it? And that's all I care. I don't want to sit there and argue with people for forty minutes about you know what this meant there and what that meant. There are a lot of people. I did that in film school. You know. I did that with the guy that, that swore that he thought that Charles Bronson would make a perfect Jesus in a, in a movie about Jesus. <laughs> because his theory was that 
Jesus had to scare somebody. He couldn't be pretty looking like he is in Jeffrey Hunter and all those other movies. So they figured Charles Bronson had to be the perfect Jesus. And before I hear that, I'm like, no, let me tell you why you're wrong. <laughs> and now yeah. I, I hear that on the bus and I'm like, ah, he'll just get off on another stop. I'm not going to bother with it. The science fiction also that I first started appreciating and reading from was because of those anthology series that I watched on Channel 45 in, in Baltimore. Uh, I, I sat up uh, in the summer. I could sit up as late as I wanted to. And I would sit up and watch mm -hmm. movies until 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning. My parents would let me as long as I didn't make noise. Okay? So uh, I would do that. And at 11 o'clock uh, every night, they had uh, two half-hour episodes of One Step Beyond. And, you know, with that, with that wonderful music and, and John Newland, who was a wonderful, uh, he was a, an actor and a singer. And he actually was and a, director. A, a, uh, and a director, too, uh, and directed well up into the 70s, I think. Uh, did, a, did a lot of different uh, mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, he, at one point, actually had a two-person act uh, with Milton Berle when they were involved all together, hmm. uh, which I would have loved to have seen how that one worked out. Uh, but uh, he hosted that. But you had these wonderful, these wonderful shows. Like with, there was one I always remember about Charles Bronson and, and, a, and the Ghost of a Boxer. Uh, and, and oftentimes, you know, like we we've talked about the Twilight Zone before. Even when there is no hope in the Twilight Zone episode, maybe it's just me, but somewhere deep down, I feel like there is. There's something mm -hmm. there. Uh, that, you know, okay, maybe this is turning out badly, but maybe there's some good in there somewhere. Uh, and I, I loved One Step Beyond. It was, it was very different. And actually, when they started putting out all the, when it used to be the dollar DVDs, where you could get 5,000 movies for fourteen ninety five or whatever, yeah. uh, all public domain, uh, I got to watch a lot of Tales of Tomorrow which was from 1953, which is yeah. like on Kinescope now. And it was mostly Kinescope, and it's live at that time. And it, it's probably the most infamous for it. There was a production of um, Frankenstein they did live, uh, which actually John Newland played Dr. Frankenstein. And Lon Chaney Jr. played the monster. Uh, at this point in his career, Lon Chaney Jr. drank a lot. And between the rehearsal and the actual live shoot, he got really plastered. The sad thing is, because it's funny and sad at the same time, he thinks the live show is the dress rehearsal. So he's supposed to go crazy and break these chairs and these tables and whatever. And what he does is he picks them up and goes, ah! And then he very gently puts them down <laughs> so he won't break them. Hmm. And at one point... As he leaves the room, uh, they, this is on the internet, you can, they can blow it up a little bit. He starts to sit on the chair, and he puts the chair down there, and he says, I'll save that for the show, and mm -hmm. walks out. And, you know, the, the, the production still is fascinating because it is the caveman days of television. Yeah. Um, but again, I look at it and go, my God, they were doing a half-hour live show with multiple sets uh, and a lot of these shows were written by guys that within 10 years would be doing, like, you know, Franklin Schaffner did uh, a, a bunch of uh, Tales of Tomorrow. He won, he won the Oscar for Patton, like, in 1970, you know? So, I mean, these guys were all cutting their teeth, and that's what it feels like. It, 
And mm. I know, Joe, you, you, we, we, this is something that you'll be you'll understand the reference to uh, your show of shows and my favorite year. That's the, the thing that I always when I saw that originally got from that is these were guys that were just doing what they had to do to get a little more experience. And these shows, they talk about Roger Corman, brilliance on a budget. This is what these guys were doing with those shows. Uh, and if you can find any Tales of Tomorrow around, and you can't, I think all of them uh, have been like remastered or whatever and on DVD. There's it's, a bunch on YouTube, too. Yeah, there's a bunch on YouTube, too. You can, uh, they're really, really fascinating to see. And But my idea of science fiction prior to that, like I said, was Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers, the serials, that stuff. Then I started to see different, you know, through these other anthology shows. And then all of a sudden, I'm watching The Twilight Zone. Mm. And now, everything's starting to make a little more sense to me. See, I always feel like with a horror film, there is no hope in the horror film. The, the, the horror film is just who's going to survive in most cases. Well, in most cases. I was going to, I'm going to, I got to, I, okay, I, I, challenge, I would challenge okay. you on that. But I would have to ask you now, since you, you kind of stepped up, is Frankenstein a science fiction story? No, I think Frankenstein is a horror story, to tell you the truth. Why? Why? Well, the original idea of making someone, uh, you know, when they, I think, I think a lot of people consider it to be a science fiction story when they started bringing kind of stricken fat and lightning machines and whatever yeah. out there and start, started doing that. The whole idea to me is that it's a horror story because of the fact that uh, you were, as the old saying goes, messing in a god's domain that you weren't supposed yes, to you know you know you're you're out there before and, you know i mean tampered. i believe the word you're looking for is tampered tampered in god's domain no i would yeah, say frankenstein a, is, is science fiction wolfman and dracula is horror because those are both dealing with curses and things ah, that but let me but, let me, let but let they me, were let always me, let, me, you know, let me let me point this question to both of you the hammer frankenstein films what are they Really messy. Yeah. Uh, makes me watch Svengoolie. Uh, I mean, uh, Mystery Science Theater in 3000 and Svengoolie. Yeah, I, I would say uh, in a category of their own. Well, it's the Hammer is a thing that Hammer existed. Hammer made its breakthrough with science fiction. And the last best film they made, was, they bought the rights to Nigel Neal's Quatermass. Mm -hmm. scripts and they made the first two and they were so successful they asked jimmy sangster uh the in-house writer said just write another one is it, yep. it's a quite a master don't will with somebody else's name we don't care just write another one um and then they ended uh, the the greatness of hammer to me ends with uh with quite mass in the pit in 1967 yeah. so yeah i get you could kind of put them off on their own the thing about like when we all went to the movies as kids i mean i there's a small plaque dedicated to me inside the Westbury Theater on Post Avenue as the kid who was taken out of the theater scared during the first five minutes of movies, he then made his parents bring him back to the next <laughs> night. <laughs> we were a wealthy family and we could do that. <laughs> because, yes, you know, I mean, it's like the place for horror and science fiction, the scary parts. And it may be that the double bills of the AIP films were, by their very nature, more horror than science fiction. That they reworked stuff. But I guess, I don't know, I have an automatic reaction to, to saying something is universally without hope. And that may just be wanting to protect myself from the goblins. So, and now I'm trying to think, what's a horror movie that has a really good ending? 
Oh, the fly. No, that Village of the Damned, no, that's not going very well for George Sanders. Well, how about um, uh, how about uh, Gorgo? Mom comes, grabs the kid, and they go back in the ocean. Yeah, and that was only the third or fourth time that Eugene Lurier made that film. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's although, I, again, it's like, why didn't they just let the baby go? Oh, because yeah, she's got to wreck the, exactly. she's gotta wreck the city. Oh, yeah. we're not going to have any fun. And, you know, and then... And the two guys are kind of stuck there, like like Carl Denham at the end of King Kong, <laughs> saying, "I gotta get out of town. <laughs> I'm not paying for this. Uh, I'm not paying for this." <laughs> Here's the man who captured the beast. No, no, he's a guy who looks like me. Joseph Doherty is with us via Zoom. Joseph Doherty, Emmy Award-winning writer, producer, and director, and the author of a new science fiction novel called "The First Cylinder," that draws inspiration from the famous invasion of Earth by Martians that H.G. Wells depicted in his classic novel, War of the Worlds. Only Joe tells the story from the perspective of the Martians. The first cylinder is available right now through Fayetteville Mafia Press and Amazon.com. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. We are the real Brady Brady Bros. Brady Brothers from the TV show Brady Bunch. I'm Barry Williams. And I'm Christopher Knight. I played Greg. And uh, who were you again? I played Peter. We've decided that we're going to do a podcast around episodes of The Brady Bunch. We're going to use it as a prism to look back to our experience doing the show and why The Brady Bunch is still popular. Have a sunshine day. We are The Real Brady Bros. One more item. Summertime is in full swing. And if you have dry skin, you know what happens when the weather gets warmer. More visible lines. And dullness. Fortunately, our friends at Ibu Beauty can help. Their Super Duo Serum and Moisturizer is all you need this summer for the perfect glow. Check them out, ibubeauty.com. That's Y-I-B-U beauty.com or at Ibu Beauty on Instagram. Use customer code Ibu50 now at checkout and receive 50% off your first order. Dan Barron and Tony Figueroa are also with us. We're having some fun talking about some of our favorite science fiction shows, shows that may be obscure today, but which first got us interested in science fiction as a genre. Dan? So I want to ask you a question because I know that you're a little more familiar with these than I am. Talk to me about Outer Limits. Oh, Outer Outer Limits is the German expressionistic uh, stepchild (laughs) of Twilight Zone. I made Tony laugh. <laughs> what fun about that? I, I never heard German expressionistic use as kind of a punchline. <laughs> well, you got to hang around. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Outer Limits, which I love this story, was only on for a season and a half, so there are only 44 episodes. Yeah, exactly. And it had a very checkered... It was... No one knew what to make of it, beginning with the network. And the first 30 episodes are are different in tone and less formulaic yes. than the last 14. Yes, but there are, uh, weirdly enough, some diamonds in the second season. Mm-hmm. What ABC did, basically, is they, they brought the series back and fired everybody. Yeah. R- right down to the composer. They replaced Dominic Fronturi with Henry Lubin, who had done uh, One Step Beyond. They didn't even want the music left behind. They didn't want the directors. You know, Byron Haskin was a staff director, kind of. He did like about five, I think, in the first season. They didn't want Byron Haskin around anymore. And they're kind of really clunky and blunky. And, and the second season is 
I, I somebody said you can understand the second season when you understand that the line producer they got had done Perry Mason, <laughs> and that was his that was his idea of structure. But in the second season, you have Harlan Ellison's two of Harlan Ellison's best, arguably his best dramatic scripts, Soldier, and The Demon with the Glass Hand. Mm-hmm. They should they show up. They you know the reason I had to buy the second season was to get those two episodes. Um. But the first season is very dark. It's Joseph Stefano and Leslie Stevens. Leslie Stevens is a playwright. And Stefano was quite literally coming off of the high of writing Psycho for yeah. Hitchcock. And Hitchcock hated the he Stefano was supposed to hang around and write, keep writing. But he wanted to be, and Hitchcock didn't like that. He wanted to be a producer. Um, they're dark. They're beautifully photographed a lot of them by conrad hall they're dark except for ex- except for the episode with barry my uh barry white barry morse and carol o'connor called it controlled yes. experiment controlled experiment which is the bottle show to end all bottle shows we're not moving off of this set <laughs> and i'm nuts about controlled experiment i think i watch it, it once or twice a year just watch it straight through and it is. It's, and I don't know if it was supposed to be a backdoor pilot, but you almost wish it had been. I understand it was. I understand it was. But, yeah. It was also the story. Uh, the other story was that Leslie Stevens wrote it on the airplane coming back from New York, which would have been about a six or seven hour flight in 1963. And there's no writing credit on the screen. Huh. That's right. I'm. There's, I've checked, he, he didn't, he wasn't really, he felt he had done what he was supposed to do. Um, but it's wonderful. It's a wonderful episode. Um, and, you know, it's, it's the revelation of seeing, of, of seeing Carol O'Connor in that. It's just startling because he's actually playing two roles. He's playing a Martian. He's playing the Martian pretending to be a human. And it's a very little meek person. And they were supposed to have, like, claws, but instead they end up with rubber gloves. And it's a... And, oh, it's got, it's got a Star Trek connection, too. Yeah, uh, Grace Lee yeah. Whitney. Grace Lee Whitney. Plays the woman scorned. Yes, the woman scorned. You no good backbiting, two-timing. Yes, and... So take uh, that. There, there are a lot of freeze frames of... Grace Lee Whitney's backside, and yep. it, 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 because that is part of the storyline, it has to do with stopping time and replaying moments. Yes, for those of yeah, for those who don't know, two Martians have come down. They've been told to investigate the phenomenon of murder, and they're told that someone will shoot somebody in the lobby of this hotel. And they go and they watch it. And they can't make heads or tail out of it. So they say, well, we're going to control this experiment. We'll slow it down. We'll speed it up. We'll get inside their heads. And they just have a terrible time trying to come to some some kind of conclusion. I have got to put a, I have got to watch that episode of a stopwatch and find exactly <laughs> how much of it is just optical effects going back and forth yeah. and on and over and just around and through. But that's a Twilight Zone episode. That means it's, it runs 52 minutes, which was the length of network television in 1964. And Dominic Frontori's music didn't sound like anything else. Although I heard recently that a lot of those cues are from 
Dominic Fronturi's score for Saber because that's he was working with Leslie Stevens uh, before that. But there's some truly macabre, beautiful uh, Outer Limits episodes. They're a little more lyrical, and they're a little more and and the show in general is more visually stylistic than The Twilight Zone. And it was the show, the show scared the hell out of me as a kid. Good, glad that to was. hear. I mean, David McCollum uh, in the in the full makeup did that. Xanti Misfits, of course. Every and, and anyone who's ever gotten up in the middle of the night and gone to the kitchen and turned on the light has prayed they not seen a Xanti Misfit. Misfit. The Xanti uh, Misfits. They are also astonishing, particularly the first season. They are beautifully written. There's this beautiful. There's the beautiful episode with Martin Landau, who is given the opportunity to go back in time to stop the world from ending, to stop biological event. But he goes back too far. And the person he's supposed to kill hasn't been born yet. So does he kill the mother of the child? Or what do you do? And both Stevens and Stefano, who neither of them are in, said, this is our fairy tale. This is our frog prince. And it's just beautiful. Joseph Doherty is with us via Zoom along with Tony Figueroa and Dan Farron. Joe, Dan, and Tony will be back next week for part two of our conversation about obscure science fiction shows. We'll pick up the thread of time travel as a theme often explored on science fiction television. Plus, we'll branch out and talk about some of our favorite obscure shows from the 1970s. That is coming up next week on TV Confidential. In the meantime, the first cylinder, the breakout science fiction novel by Joseph Doherty, available Fayetteville Mafia Press and Amazon.com. In the meantime, and speaking of time travel as a popular genre in television, when we come back, we'll tell you about a new science fiction series that's coming up later in 2023 that blends time travel with true crime. We'll tell you what we mean by that when we welcome writer-producer Dale Peterson. We come back on TV Confidential. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash tvconfidential, or at TV Confidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay Area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time homebuyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411. Or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.